substitution. Too many men on the field. Saskatchewan. Gizmo has a block in the sideline. He has not stepped out. He may go all the way. He needs one block and he'll do it easily. Promise mess I wouldn't do this. McDavid stops up. What a move. Shoots. Scores. It's the Outsiders, brought to you by the Macintosh Group at Remax River City. It's Podcast 55. My name is Bryn Griffiths, and joining us, as always, is Robin Brownlee. How are you doing today? I'm excellent, and I love the number 55, so this will be a good one because that's a good number. Okay, what's so special about 55? Is that your age? You're, you're a lot older than 55. Come on. Fess up. I would I would take 55 as my age any day. In fact, I did take it as my age seven years ago. Okay, so, there we go then. So what's the deal with 55? I had a 1955 Chevy, which to this day rem, remains my favorite car. Okay, there we go. So there's the, uh, you didn't want to say it. I will say it. You had a love affair with a 55. Yes, I did. Gotcha. Hey, I'm looking forward to the show today because Scott Russell from CBC Sports is going to join us. We are just inside 100 days now before the Olympics coming up in Tokyo. However, this was supposed to happen last year. And of course, with COVID, got pushed back to this, or pushed ahead rather, to this coming year. A lot of people didn't think they were going to be able to do it. Some people still don't think they're going to be able to do it. But Japan say, we're going to do it. So looking forward to talking to Scott, who has become CBC's real Olympic voice. He knows all the athletes and uh, he, he certainly, he's got a love for Olympians and also amateur athletics along with having won awards and done hockey night in Canada and all that kind of stuff. So I'm looking forward to talking to Scott. He's also written three books. So lots to talk to Scott about today, but let's get to some of the hot topics here this past week. The Vancouver Canucks going to play 18 games in 28 days. Yikes. But how they, how they got through the 23 days of nothing because they were having to battle through COVID, watching them beat the Toronto Maple Leafs the other day, I was very, very impressed. I, and it was hard not to cheer for them, but you could see the effort they were giving, Robin. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting, Bryn. I was, I was having one of the more heated debates I've had in a long time in the comments section at Oilers Nation. I wrote a piece last week. Um, what's the hurry question mark saying that you know forcing these guys back at the time after uh one one skate and one game day morning skate didn't make sense yeah it screws up the schedule yes it's inconvenient and it's ridiculous to expect them to come out and be competitive now they move yes they moved the games a couple days and here we go. The Maple Leafs go in there a couple days after the Oilers were supposed to play them. And I was shocked. I, we were chatting before we came on here. I thought it could be 10 nothing Toronto going in. And not because I consider Toronto this juggernaut. It's just that when you've been out that long, pro athlete or not, and you get guys like JT Miller uh, and Bo Horvat talking about Man, we're not in shape. Well, you know, their shape is not our shape. It's a different kind of thing. But they know better than anybody. And you can go out there and have the desire to compete all you want. If the if the lungs and the legs aren't working, uh, it's just not going to happen for you. I was stunned that they stayed that close and, in fact, won the game. Absolutely stunned you and i've traveled with enough nhl teams to know that if let's say they're playing three games in four nights or maybe four and six road trips you usually don't see the guys tire by the end of a road trip physically but you can see the mental breakdowns start to occur and i've always said to people that for me players don't get tired their brains do but in this particular case and i guess i can't say i'm overly surprised by the canucks and the way they played in their in their uh, their overtime victory over the Leafs on on Sunday night, but mentally they were ready to go. Physically, I think that the brain dragged them along, 
and they found a way to get that one done. I, I was just, I was, uh, you know, it's hard not to be impressed with, uh, with the effort that they put forward. And the other thing too, JT Miller spoke up and the NHL actually listened. And I thought that yeah. that was good. Now, did they listen only because the players association said, no, what, what the hell are you doing here? Or do you think the NHL actually went, you know what? Maybe we should reconsider a little bit here. And that game against the Oilers on Friday night got, got, to, got basically pushed aside, which was, that was a good thing for the Oilers too, in a lot of ways, because to play in Vancouver on Friday night and then go all the way out to Winnipeg for what was the bigger yeah. of the two games for the Oilers. The Oilers kind of lucked out, I think, because they were able to put all their focus into a huge game against Winnipeg. But anyway, I just, I was very impressed with Vancouver. Well, and my understanding, Bryn, because the information leading up to what was going to happen first with the Oilers and then later uh, when they decided they'd get back at it with Toronto, uh, you know, I was chatting with uh, Ben Kuzma, the beat man uh, for Post Media out there, and really uh, getting back when they did, everybody had sort of agreed on a time frame. Uh, but it was all contingent, and we're talking about a time frame to start against the Oilers. It was all contingent on everybody. First of all, the, the Canucks having the week to practice. Well, the practice kept getting pushed back uh, because of COVID and players still in protocol. And then it was going to hinge finally uh, on the cardiac uh, work that was done and getting a fair read on that. The PA had said, yep, the timetable sounds fine. The players had said, yes, it sounds fine. If things go as planned, well, things didn't go as planned. And I'm glad that they looked at the results, uh, took a step back instead of saying, well, we kind of agreed to this and it's a big hassle for people if it doesn't come off like we said it would. Well, you know what? key FB when it comes to uh, what you originally planned because they did look <laughs> yeah. TFB. You look oh, oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, they did it right. And we criticize and jump up and down when they don't. And there's lots of cases of that. I'm glad they looked at it. I'm glad they listened to the players. And you know what? A guy like JT Miller and later uh, Bo Horvat, mm -hmm. They don't come out and talk if everybody in the room isn't thinking the same thing or the vast majority. Right. They're not going to come out and be the, the rogue guy who bitches and moans. They were put up as the guys to talk. And Miller said what he had to say. And he's, I'm sure he said it with the full knowledge of all his teammates. I'm glad they listened. I'm glad they took an extra couple of days. Um, and you know what? Again, we saw the result. Now we need to see what happens during this long stretch of games because like you said it adrenaline whatever you want to call it that might have played into things but man this grind coming up it's a grind at the best of times let alone when you're getting over covid and we don't know how that works how many times since this started in a year Bryn have we had basically an entire team in protocol have to come out and play and not only play, but play this many games in this many days. I'm not sure they're through it yet, but we wait and see and hope for the best. And at the time of this taping, that's 18 games over 28 days, five of them against the Edmonton Oilers. Let's move on to Edmonton, and we'll talk about Calgary as well. Oilers basically are five wins away from uh, clinching a playoff spot. Seems that 63 to 64 points is that magic number, like 92 is during a regular NHL schedule. So I can't see the Oilers in their final nine, not winning five. But uh, they're going to have Dmitry Kulikov in their lineup very quickly here. They're hosting the Habs the next two games, a team that they have struggled with. And I've watched those games, and I'm thinking to myself, so what is the problem here? Well, part of it is that, that Montreal seemed to play the Oilers really tough in terms of forechecking. They get in. They mm -hmm. not hesitate to dump it in. And when they dump it in, it's usually a tie by the time the defenseman who's turned around to go after the puck He's usually got a guy right on him. Now, Mike Smith's got to be playing here because they need that little bit of help to move the puck out of his own end so quickly. But Montreal's really given trouble to the Edmonton Oilers and uh, for a lot of reasons. It's not hasn't been goaltending because the Oilers' goaltending this season's been better than Montreal's. Maybe not so much in the head-to-head -head games, though. No, you know, the, the thing is, um, you can say Connor McDavid 
and Leon Dreisaitl have been somewhat quiet, somewhat quiet for them right. in, certain, in, in certain games against the Habs. You know, much like they were, uh, Toronto just handcuffed them for those three wins here. I think Dreisaitl was the, got the only point in those three games. Um, you know, Montreal, uh, I, I, honest, Bryn, it's hard for me to get a read on them because I like them as a team. I picked them to make the playoffs. Some people had them winning the North uh, going into the season. I didn't see that, but I also didn't see a team outside the playoffs. I think they're going to be in, but they've still got some work to do. You know, you lose 4 nothing to the Ottawa Senators, and we've said more than once this year, especially you, you know, Ottawa's not that bad. Edmonton owns them, but they're competitive, and that's true. But, man, I can't see the Habs losing four zip uh, to the Senators coming out here without Brendan Gallagher, who's got a busted thumb. I maybe like him more than some people do. I just think he's a real driver for that team. I don't see them winning either game against the Oilers. Okay, I stand to be corrected, but right now I don't see it. Well, and the key for Montreal at this point now is winning games because the Calgary Flames seem to be getting it going. They've played pretty well the past 10 and uh, the question is, have they run out of racetrack? You and I both believe that they have. However, the Habs are going to be playing Calgary, I think, down the stretch four more times. If Calgary found a way to run the table there, and then they lose two against the Edmonton Oilers here, it's game yep. on for that final playoff spot. It's well, hard to believe I'm saying as, that. And, and much as uh, uh, I find it hard to believe I'm saying this, you know, you can actually have the uh, uh, fans down in Calgary cheering for the Oilers these next couple of games because they want the Montreal Canadiens running in place and getting no points in two straight games is a good start on that. You don't want Montreal coming in here and winning a couple because now uh, the runway is even shorter, to use your term. Yeah, that's the squeamish part about this all-Canadian division is you find if you're a fan, you've got to cheer in some respects, for a team that you can't stand cheering for. But I guess that's part yep. of the fun down the stretch. Hey, uh, got to talk about Patrick Marlowe here before we take a break. Setting a new NHL record for most games played. 100 and, well, sorry, 1,768 games. Monday night, suiting up against the Vegas Golden Knights. Congratulations to Patty on that. One of the great guys, too. You've You've had a chance to talk to him. I have, too, and... Man, he always seems to have time for you. Never feel like you're being yeah, tolerated or he's just putting up with you. He's all he's he's always been just very welcoming and I, I always like that. So I'm thrilled to see him set this mark. Gordy Howe was forty one when he set the mark in the NHL, but two Saskatchewan boys doing well. Well, it's funny. I remember when Patrick Marlowe came in and you know I've, I've forgotten the stat exactly, Bryn, but in his first five years for guys who started in the National Hockey League as teenagers, uh, he was among the top uh, five scorers uh, in his first five seasons, uh, you know, for total points. He looked like he might become a more high-end player early on. What he did was he settled in to being a really good two-way player and obviously a durable guy. I mean, he's been a heck of a player for a long time. And, you know, that that Howe record, it's, it's, it's remarkable in many ways. It speaks to his health. But, you know, aside from that, there was an argument I was listening to this morning, a, a debate on radio, you know, is Patrick Marlowe a Hall of Fame player? Anytime you break a Gordy Howe record, You're gonna maybe get that kicks that kick starts the conversation. I don't think so. Uh, just because when you divide up the numbers between all those seasons, and again, not to knock all those seasons, because it takes a rare player to play that many games, obviously, but man, he's been a real good player for a long time. And you know. Um, he's still really good. That's the thing. He's not hanging on for dear life. 23 seasons for Patrick, most of it with, obviously, the San Jose Sharks. And as for Gordy, this one keeps coming up a few times. They said, okay, this is the NHL mark for most games played. 
Gordy played an yeah. additional 419 games when he played in the World Hockey Association for both the Houston Arrows and the Hartford slash yeah. New England Whalers. So Gordy, uh, I mean, Gordy's still Gordy. There's, there's a reason why he's Mr. Hockey. So uh, anyway, just, yeah. just to kind of up, update everybody there. Okay, just before we get to our guests, we have to remind you, and we're happy to remind you, that The Outsiders is brought to you by the Macintosh Group. You know, uh, chatting with Brent last week, we're talking about the single-family median sales price. It's on the rise in Metro Edmonton, and a lot of that has to do with ridiculously low interest rates, so everybody's trying to get in on the party right now. So it's a great time to trade your current home, maybe for a larger one, if that's what you're looking for. The other thing that's interesting to me, and Brent was pointing out, that, you know, we can talk about homes in the city, but the area where things are really surging are on acreages. And that's because with the bubbles that everybody are trying to create, they want a little more space where they can get out and walk around on their property rather than just walk around inside their home and in their tiny little yard. I thought that was kind of interesting. If you'd like some more information, get a hold of them at 780-464-0075 or check out the team and ask them any questions you have at macintoshgroup.ca. We'll have a little bit more on that coming up in a little bit. Okay, up next, our headliner, Scott Russell from CBC Sports, talking a little bit about the Olympics and what's going on with Tokyo. And I'm sure we'll have some other stories, too. He's written books. He's been a Hockey Night in Canada host for many, many years. So up next, right here on The Outsiders, it's Scott Russell from CBC Sports. Joining us on The Outsiders, our headliner today is Scott Russell from CBC Sports. This is a long time no talk. We've seen you a lot. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Bren. Uh, great to see you and Robin. And uh, I remember the good old days when I was doing Oilers games. It, it was fantastic to be there. And uh, it's, it's great to talk to you, albeit at a difficult time, but uh, always wonderful to speak with you guys about the prospects of sport, the Olympic Games, whatever you want to talk about. Hey, before we get into all the Olympic stuff going on, and we're inside 100 days from the Tokyo Games, uh, let's talk about you. Because a lot of times, we do this with everybody, and we always find out some interesting stuff from guys. And that, so, what? Where did, where did you get started? Was it in, uh, in Prince Edward Island is where your broadcast career started? Yeah, really, you know, it before that, when I was uh, graduating from the University of Western Ontario, I did a master's degree in journalism, and my placement was at CHYM Radio in Kitchener, and uh, I ran into a guy there, a fantastic sports broadcaster by the name of Ken Welsh, and uh, Kenny uh, took me under his wing. I had a great time in my uh, student placement at uh, Chime Radio in Kitchener, and then from there, went into the CBC Summer Training Program. And yeah, uh, my first placement was uh, CBC Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. And from there, I got a job, went on to be the uh, sports director at CBC Charlottetown, spent two and a half wonderful years there, then on to Montreal, which is where I first connected with Hockey Night in Canada. And then in 1992, 93, I came to the network here in Toronto. So yeah, I've seen a lot of the country. And as you know, guys, I, I worked for a, a long time with Hockey Night in Canada, and uh, I was in the West quite a bit in Calgary and Edmonton and Vancouver. Uh, it's been a great journey. Now, uh, you know, it's interesting, Scott. Uh, you know, a lot of broadcasters would consider themselves having done well to uh, cover the National Hockey League for as long as you did, or uh, to have covered, what is it, 13 or 14 Olympics yeah. like you have to do both. Uh, that's a full resume right there. Uh, talk about that. Well, that was Robin, the way we used to do things at CBC is, is, you know, when you were working hockey night in Canada and, uh, I'd, I'd go to the the West for instance, every weekend I'd leave on, I'd leave on the Friday and, uh, you know, head to Edmonton, uh, and we'd get ready to do the game on, on Saturday night back to uh back to toronto on uh on the sunday and then midweek we we'd have our our own sports uh whether it was show jumping in in my case i used to call gymnastics 
play-by-play. And in the winter, I did alpine skiing. Um, so we, we used to do everything, and we became jacks of all trades, so to speak. And, you know, that was the, the great uh, upbringing as a sports broadcaster uh, working with the CBC is, is you built your Olympic broadcasting into Hockey Night in Canada, or, and we worked the CFL as well. Um, so, you know, you really became a well-rounded broadcaster. And uh, boy, I, I wouldn't trade that for the world because we were, we were generalists in many ways, not specialists, but generalists. And it, it was a tremendous time. Now, we, I want to go back even further. And we're going to go back to Oshawa days. Was there a moment where you said, this is what I want to do? Like for me, I started doing basketball play-by-play when I was in grade seven at my junior high. And, you know, I'd be watching Monday Night Football with uh, the crew and Howard Cosell. And I thought to myself, that would be kind of fun. And weirdly enough, that passion drove me to what I've been doing all my life. But what about you? Well, you know, I always wanted to be, uh, Bryn, a teacher. And I ended up being a teacher, uh, at a high school in Owen Sound, Ontario, for a couple of years after I graduated from Western with my education degree. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you, I was turned on to um, sport, and, and I, I dallied with the idea. I, I loved, you know, the, the majesty of sport and, and the is- interesting nature of it. Um, and I thought about sports broadcasting because when I was a little kid, um, my uncle Jim... Uh, took me uh, in Oshawa to see Bobby Orr play at the Mm. Civic Auditorium. And uh, Bobby Orr was a kid, like he was, he might've been 16, 17 years old at the time. Um, And my uncle Jim said to me, you see that guy, Bobby Orr? He says, if you're not watching him, you're not watching the hockey game. And I I remember Bobby Orr totally dominated that night. I, I can't remember whether they were playing St. Catharines, Blackhawks, whoever it was, but uh, Orr was so fantastic. And I, I, you know, I went to the Orr Walton uh, Hockey School in Orillia, Ontario at Lake Kuchiching as a kid and ran into Bobby Orr. He was on the ice with us uh, every day. He was a fantastic guy. And uh, I think that's when I really fell in love with this idea of sports broadcasting. I mean, it was just like, my goodness, there's, Bobby Orr. So uh, those are the roots of it right there, Bryn. It's interesting, Scott. Uh, uh, Bryn and I both, one broadcast, one print guy, you know, a lot of what we end up talking about with guests is, you know, we relate to riding the buses. You know, Bryn was a team broadcaster. You know, you start out in junior where it's far from glamorous. You talked about CBC, a jack of all trades. Well, if you're a broadcaster or even a writer in the WHL or a junior league, you're a jack of all trades too. And you're on these bus rides and, and it's different a little bit from, from what you did, but what about those early days just grabbed you and, and made you think, man, this is what I want to do. You know, uh, Robin, I, I'll tell you about one experience that I had. Um, in those early days uh, with Hockey Night in Canada in particular. Um, We had a show, and we still have a show, uh, Hockey Day in Canada, as you know. And uh, at the very outset of it, um, I was sort of like the field reporter for Hockey Day in Canada. And uh, I remember doing two stories uh, in one of the first editions of Hockey Day in Canada. One was on... um, a guy named Andy Sullivan, and I wrote about this in my second book. Andy Sullivan was a fish plant worker uh, from uh, Whitless Bay, Newfoundland. And uh, Mark Crawford at the time was the coach of the St. John's Maple Leafs when they were in the American Hockey League. And uh, there was a point in time when the playoffs approached when the uh, St. John's Maple Leafs ran out of players because of call-ups to the Toronto Maple Leafs, and because they had a ton of injuries. And so Crawford had, you know, a tough time uh, fielding a lineup for a given game. And somebody went to him and and said, hey, why don't you uh, have a look at this guy named Andy Sullivan? And Crawford said, what the heck? Who is Andy Sullivan? 
And uh, the guy says, well, he's a fish plant worker in Whitless Bay. And Crawford says, you have got to be kidding me. Uh, and the guy said, no, no, really. He, he ate up the senior league here in, in Newfoundland. You should have a look at him. Crawford says, fine. So they bring Andy Sullivan uh, to the St. John's Maple Leafs. Crawford says, this guy's got some talent. And uh, he ends up scoring a couple of goals in his first playoff game playing for the St. John's Leafs. And hmm. Crawford was a, a devotee of Andy Sullivan. So we told that story in Hockey Day in Canada. And I thought, man, sport and hockey means so much around the country. The other one I will tell you about uh, has an Alberta connection uh, because we did, Robin, we did, we rode the bus with Bob Ridley of the uh, Medicine Hat Tigers. And uh, you talk about a jack of all trades. Here's yeah. Bob Ridley. He drives the team bus. You know, he loads them all up and he gets them off the Red Deer. Um, and then he unloads the bus and then he scrambles up because he's also doing the play-by-play of every one of the Tigers games. And, uh, you know, uh, Bob Ridley was such a wonderful guy. We did, we did accompany him. Uh, on, a, on a story we did for Hockey Day in Canada on a trip to Red Deer and uh, late nights, Kelly Rudy and I went on the trip and I thought to myself, wow, if there's people like this in sport, then it, it's got to be a good thing. He was just devoted to the Medicine Hat Tigers. Now, it's funny you should mention Bob Ridley because my time in the Western Hockey League, Bob would have been a mentor to me. So who would have been a mentor to you when you were getting started? Well, there were there were a lot of mentors, uh, uh, Bryn, um, but but I will say that uh, Dick Irvin was uh, really important to me uh, when I first uh, went to Montreal. This would be 1988, uh, and I was a news, you know, a sports reporter um, on Newswatch was the show, and uh, you know, my first story was uh, to cover the Canadians, uh, and I went to the old Montreal Forum. Uh, stepped inside the door, and uh, there was Dick Irvin and John Beliveau and Red Fisher. And I walked inside the door, and I had met Dick before, uh, very briefly. And uh, Dick goes, Scott, uh, come on in. Uh, Jean, Red, this is Scott Russell. He's the new guy, going to be the new guy, Hockey Night in Canada, doing the sideline reporting or rinkside reporting. And uh, he's working for... CBC Montreal, I'd like to introduce you to John Beliveau and Red Fisher. And I'll never forget that John Beliveau, you know, reached out his hand and said, Scott, welcome to Montreal Forum. You are always welcome here. And from that day forward, uh, John Beliveau never forgot my name uh, when I came to the Montreal Forum. Always had the time to say hello. And I wrote about John in that book, The Rink. Uh, because uh, Le Colisee in, uh, Le Colisee in Quebec uh, was was inextricably tied uh, to to Jean Beliveau. But there you go, Dick Irvin's certainly a mentor. Steve Armitage uh, was a mentor to me. Um, you know, and, and I have to say that uh, you know working with Chris Cuthbert, boy, what a, what a thrill that was. Uh, you know, Chris is such an accomplished guy, and, and to become good friends with him and to be able to learn from him was tremendously important. So there's three people right there for you. You know, I always love answers about that kind of thing when we talk to somebody uh, like you, Scott. Um, I go back, and and you talk about mentors or just people, you know, whether you're just starting out or sometimes even before that. I remember walking into the meal area at the Pacific Coliseum. I was still in school. I was still in college taking journalism and there was no place to sit. And I'm looking around at guys who I would come to know in later years. And there's one, there's one seat at the end of a table that you got to walk past a bunch of people to get to. And I'm thinking, well, I can't take that one. I don't know anybody here. I'm seeing people I see on the nightly sports broadcasts and I read in the newspaper, Jim Taylor goes, And lets me sit in the seat. I tell you what, it was a long time till I called him anything but Mr. Taylor. Uh, but that revved me up right away. And it was like, oh, you could just feel the, uh, you know, the breath and the ease. Like, oh, they're not going to throw me out of here on my Vancouver Community College press pass. And the <laughs> other time was Jim Robson. I needed to do an interview in the post game. They actually wanted live quotes. 
And Jim Robson is talking to Tony Tanti. And I'm waiting. I'm standing there doing this look at the watch as guys on deadline tend to do. And he just does like this, like, come in, put your put your microphone in there. It's not exclusive. And it's like, yes. I mean, for me growing up, Jim Robson was God. Hey, and and you couldn't you couldn't have a better role model or a mentor than Jimmy Robson. Talk to him. Uh, oh, it's got to be a year ago now. And uh, you talked to Jim uh, about being one of the great voices of of hockey in this country. We talked to Dick Irvin as well. Um, and and yeah, Jim Robson was that guy. When you heard Jim come on, it was Vancouver. Um, I remember him calling the New York Islanders Stanley Cup victory. And, you know, Jimmy Robson, just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And, uh, you know, there were those people um, that, that populated hockey broadcasting in this country. And they still do. They still do. Um, wonderful voices. Wonderful. And I would say this, generous people. Another guy that I would say was very generous with me, particularly when we, we got to uh, Olympic style broadcasting was Don Whitman. Yeah. Don Don Whitman, as you know, he called everything. He called hockey. He called CFL football for so many uh, great cups. Um, and curling. He was the curling, and he he was the voice of of track and field, and called, of course, Donovan Bailey's uh, double gold medals in 1996 in Atlanta. But Don Whitman was always very generous with with me when when it came to Olympic style broadcasting. So there are so many greats out there. So how do you make this? So you've done a great job on Hockey Night in Canada, but you always had a real interest, at least this is my take, always had a real interest in amateur sports and also the Olympics. And now you've developed it and it continues to grow. And But you got a break in the one Olympics, if I'm not right. Was that 2008 where Ron McLean's mother passed away? And so... You were basically just you were asked to come in and help host. Yeah, that that was that was it. I was the morning show host in 2008 in Beijing, uh, along with Diana Swain, yeah. another great broadcaster. Um, and uh, we were deep into the games, and I think with about four or five days left, Bryn, um, uh, Ron's uh, mom passed away, and uh, so they left Diana to do the uh, morning show. And they said, could I come in and do the primetime uh, hosting the rest of the way, which, which was, you know, it was fortuitous for me. And uh, it was uh, kind of a pressure filled situation at having very big shoes to try and fill right. uh, those of Ron. And uh, I have to say that Ron was extremely supportive uh, and, and, uh, I, I think he, he wrote something to me. He said, you know, it's, it's great to turn the ship over to you to be the captain now. And it was, it was a, it was a difficult time, but it, it was an energizing time at the Olympics. Scott, before we really jump into what's happening now, I got to ask, because I didn't know this about you. Um, is it true that you ran in a couple of Boston marathons? I, I didn't run in two, Robin. I ran. I ran in one. Okay. I ran in one, and uh, yes, and I completed the Boston Marathon in 2005, uh, and I think I was. I, I think it was 45 years old at the time. Huh. Uh, it was the most difficult thing I have ever done. Uh, but you know what was really cool about that Boston Marathon was. Um, the person who started the Boston Marathon, and she was the Grand Marshal of that year's marathon, uh, was Jacqueline Garreau. Now, I'll tell you the story here. Uh, Jacqueline Garreau, uh, in 1980, had finished second in the Boston Marathon, or so we thought, because the person who won the women's Boston Marathon in 1980 was a woman by the name of Rosie Ruiz. And you met, you remember this story. Oh yeah. Rosie, Rosie Ruiz finished the, the Boston marathon first, but it was later found out that she, you know, about a mile from the start had hopped on the subway, waited until the appropriate time 
and then got off the subway about a kilometer away from the finish line, ran to the finish line, raised her arms, and everybody thought she won. The real winner was Canada's Jacqueline Garot. And, and the year that I ran the Boston Marathon was the 25th anniversary of her victory. And she was the grand marshal. And she said at the outset of the race, as we were all in the pen there at Hopkinton, you know, there were, what, 18,000 of us ready to go. She said, every one of you here, by virtue of the fact that you are at the Boston Marathon, is an athlete. I kind of puffed out my chest, and that gave me a little uh, get-go. Scott, I've got to ask, did you indeed run the marathon? <laughs> I did, Robin. I ran the marathon. I have to admit, I think there were about 300 yards when I walked the marathon, but I, I did the whole 26.2 miles or whatever it was. And, uh, boy, Heartbreak Hill and the Hills of Newton leading into that very, very difficult. When I crossed the line, I dropped to my knees and cried. <laughs> Some people say, I can hardly wait for next year. Did you know as you finished the cro cro across the finish line that that's the only time I'm running this race? Absolutely. I got my medal, Bryn. Uh, my wife was there. Uh, I got my medal. I wrapped that, uh, you know, that tinfoil sheet around me. And, uh, you know, my wife said, you don't have to do this ever again. And I said, you are absolutely right about that <laughs> wow hey the rio olympics back in uh, 2016 were huge for canada and uh, and that was a really big olympics for you what do you remember about that can you can you give me about two or three things that you remember because there were a lot of things a lot of positives for canada absolutely and uh, you know i i'm going to start with uh, maybe it wouldn't be uh, something that uh, would immediately jump to mind but I, I remember the night, um, it was near the end of the games, uh, and it was track and field, and it was Derek Druin uh, uh, of Canada who won the gold medal in the high jump, and yep. he, did he did not miss an attempt on his way to the gold medal. Uh, he missed when he tried for uh, the Olympic record. Um, however, uh, that was after he had already won the gold medal, and it was the first time in Canadian broadcast history, I'm, I'm pretty sure in North American broadcast history, that we covered the high jump competition you know, and stayed with it every, every attempt. We, we never broke away to another event. It was the entire high jump competition uh, to see Derek Druin of Canada win that gold medal. So that, that, that stood out with me immediately. Um, I have to say that uh, the exploits of Penny Oleksiak in the pool, you know, I remember talking to her coach, Ben Titley, um, before the Olympics, and he said, I have absolutely no idea what is going to happen here. We've got a bunch of 16, 17, 18-year-old women uh, who, who look pretty good, but they might be good in Tokyo in, uh, in 2020. I don't think they're going to do much here, maybe if we can make the final." And then all of a sudden, Penny Alexiak, you know, comes through uh, as she did. Uh, that was absolutely spectacular. And and I would say the last thing is uh, Andre de Grasse. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember uh, interviewing him uh, before the Commonwealth Games in 2014 uh, in Glasgow. And, uh, you know, I, I was broadcasting the FIFA World Cup at the time. Uh, we, we flew down to Moncton, New Brunswick. Uh, for one day in between games at, at the, the World Cup. And we interviewed the uh, Canadian track and field uh, hopefuls for those Commonwealth Games. And I had to get back to Toronto for the next uh, FIFA game. And uh, Matt Gentes at Athletics Canada came up to Judy Dine and I, Judy is our producer, and said, have you got time before you catch your flight for one more interview? Um, and I said, well, my flight's in 45 minutes here. I, I said, okay. And Judy says, okay, we can get him in. Who is this guy? And he said, well, he's a kind of a young guy. He might not do much, uh, kind of shy. Um, but if you have a couple minutes and in walks Andre DeGrasse, and little did we know that he was going to be so great. And, and right now, uh, he's got a chance to become the world's fastest man and to win the Olympic gold medal if the games happen in Tokyo. Okay, let's get to that. This was supposed to happen last year. Obviously, nothing happened last year. So Japan postponed things. And now here we're inside of 100 days, and they say they're, they're going, they're moving ahead. They said it's going to be different. 
and there's no denying that. What's your take on, are they making the right decision here? Or, I mean, how do you view this? Well, it's a big question, Bryn. (laughs) It's a very big question, and there's a lot of forks in the road that you could go down. Um, I wrote about this uh, last week uh, because I I really believe this is a moment of truth for the Olympic movement, uh, not just for these Olympic Games, but for the entire Olympic movement. And I, I think it's a moment of truth because it's compounded with the situation that is developing in Beijing vis-a-vis the Winter Games in 2022. And the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, has to make exactly the right decision in both cases going forward. And that's a tough task because we're talking about, you know, we're not talking about a bubble created with 350 NHL hockey players or with 300 swimmers at the International Swimming League in Budapest, Hungary, or, or the World Figure Skating Championships. We're talking about more than 11,000 athletes from more than 200 countries, uh, 11,000 support staff on top of that for those athletes, and then another 20 to 30,000 people who are required to run the games, technical officials, the timers, all of those people. And that's without international spectators all of those people one place at one time in the middle of a pandemic that's an interesting situation and they say they can create a bubble they say that they can bring the athletes in very close to their individual competitions that they can have them travel between the olympic village which will be the bubble and their venues And then within 48 hours, they want those athletes to leave. There will be no mingling of the athletes in other parts of Tokyo or Japan. Uh, There will be no mingling at other venues for those athletes. And so, you know, Robin mentioned this earlier, that uh, much of the aura of the games, the, the congregation of the games, won't be evident. It's a very difficult call to make. And we've got... 95 days to make. Well, the thing for me, Scott, is, I mean, I love the Olympics. um, But, you know, these are not normal times. And I guess some of the things that grab me about it are, it seems to be a will to push through no matter what. It's not so much stated like that, but that's the underlying. And, you know, hey, there's anywhere between 15 and, and $30 billion invested already so there's a stake in that and that's real money that that's that matters but the part that grabs me a little bit is well we're going to go ahead vaccines or no vaccines can we is there not time to get vaccines into arms given how things have sped up in just the last month even to at least make it safer because at the end of the day i don't want to say it's just a sporting event it's one of the biggest sporting events on the planet but i i think that comes in second best right now if everybody's not safe uh, i tend to agree with you robin um and i i i personally am hopeful or cautiously optimistic that we can get more vaccines into arms hey listen uh the People's Republic of China offered at one point in time to provide vaccines for, uh, for all of the athletes who would compete at the Olympic Games. Many of the countries uh, said thank you but no to that uh, because of the efficacy of those vaccines. They didn't believe in them, um, and, and, and that's their right. The International Olympic Committee, uh, although they're not requiring the athletes to be vaccinated, um, are urging as many countries as can to vaccinate their athletes before they arrive in Tokyo. And, and certainly, certainly that's a priority for the IOC, although they don't make it a requirement. Here's the thing about the money. And, and this is what we hear from so many commentators right now, is there are billions and billions of dollars at stake. I talked to Angela Schneider who is uh, an Olympic rower, won a silver medal for Canada in 1984 in Los Angeles. And she currently is the director of the International Center for Olympic Studies 
at Western University in London, Ontario. And Angela had a great point. She said, look, if the IOC is allowing finances and money to drive the decision-making process in a global pandemic versus safety of people, then they're wrong. They're wrong. Because I know there's a lot of money invested. There's been a lot of money invested in every business in this country and in so many countries around the world. And the economy is not in great shape. But anything can be done. Anything can be done in order to ensure the safety of the world's population. So if that means postponing these games for another year, that can be done. It can be done. And I, I think we're going to get to that point pretty soon here. Yeah, you said like 95 days in, this is, uh, the time is ticking to say, to put it rather bluntly. Now, from a perspective of what you do, and we've seen how it's changed the way we've covered hockey lately. Are you going there? No. Okay, no, so the hosts will not. The hosts will not be going. The studios from Canada will not be going to Tokyo. So our studios will be back here. Okay. So myself, Andy Petrillo, Heather Hiscox, Andrew Chang, Alex Depati, Perdita Felicien, we will host our various shows from from Canada, um, from the broadcasting center here in Toronto. But that requires that there are going to be 400 people here in the broadcasting center mm-hmm. in, dur- during this time. So we've got to hope that there's some relief here in Ontario for that to occur um, and that we can meet protocols within our own building. We will have, if they go ahead, we will have a, a smaller field crew in Tokyo. The question being... What will they have access to? Right. Can they talk to the athletes? Can they enter various bubbles or will they be limited to track and field only? Or, or it's, it's a very difficult situation. Scott, I should, maybe I should know this, but I don't. Is there a drop dead deadline for countries to say, yes, we're going or no, we aren't, or is that a fluid thing? I think it's a fluid thing, Robin. I, I, I think uh, the IOC this week is coming out with another uh, part of their so-called playbook, their COVID playbook, um, in terms of the protocols, uh, the additional protocols that are called for in uh, in Tokyo for the summer. Uh I don't think there's a drop dead deadline, a deadline that everybody knows right now. And I don't think the IOC knows. All I do know is this. I know that Tokyo is, is ready to do this. The venues are built and they have been built and are ready to go and have been for a long time. They, they will be more organized. These games than any other games in history. That's that's the way of the Japanese when it comes to major international sport. They'll be organized. The question being, and I, I think this is ultimately the question, is will the Japanese government say yay or nay? We, we, we have to either say this is acceptable to our population or it's not acceptable. And and they, I think, will have the final say. Okay, let's go on the basis that we're going ahead here. Are there two or three, four or five athletes that you really are keeping a close eye on at these games where you think that that's going to be, that's I'm watching that event tonight, or I'm going to watch that event two weeks from now. I mean, I, we're not hearing enough about the athletes, of course, because the other side show with the COVID stuff. Yeah, you are right. You're right, Bryn, and, and you know, I, I did a bunch of radio interviews last week on 100 Days Out, and, and that was, it was refreshing to be able to talk about, okay, let's assume they are going ahead, who are we looking for, and, and yes, we are looking at some great Canadian athletes. Number one, we're looking at Andre de Grasse. He ran 999 uh, in, uh, in Florida 
couple of days ago mm-hmm. and was just beaten at the wire by Justin Gatlin, the old man from the United States, uh, who, who ran 998. Uh, but Andre de Grasse is a threat to win the 100 meters. Um, and he's a threat to win a medal in the 200 meters. I don't think he can beat Noah Lyles of the United States. And again, uh, de Grasse uh, has the ability to lead Canada to the podium in the 4x100-meter relay. So number one, watch out for Andre de Grasse. Okay. Um, number two, watch out for the Canadian women in the swimming pool again. Um, and yes, Penny Oleksiak. But beyond that, there are a couple of world champions that are there. Kylie Moss in the backstroke, two-time world champion um, and a, a former world record holder in the 100-meter backstroke. Kylie Moss uh, is, is certainly uh, a gold medal hopeful, as is Maggie McNeil in the 100-meter butterfly, the world champion. She just set an NCAA record. Um, uh, she swims with Michigan. Uh, so wa- watch for, for those two, along with Penny Oleksiak and Taylor Ruck and uh, Sydney Pickram and a very strong Canadian women's swim team. And then here's, here's a really encouraging thing, because one of the things about team sport is that it can carry you through the Olympics. Canada's already qualified eight teams to these Olympics. That's more than at any non-hosted game, so more than at any games, uh, with the exception of Montreal 1976, uh, since Los Angeles 1984, eight teams. Um, the women's basketball team is very strong. Kia Nurse leads them. They're ranked number four in the world. The women's soccer team um, has the ability to win the gold medal, certainly a medal. Uh, the men's and women's rugby sevens team, uh, the, the men's volleyball team is very strong. And remember that... Canadian men's basketball team still has a chance to qualify at the last ditch tournament in Victoria in uh, early July. So, yeah. hey guys, let's assume we're going ahead. Yeah, there's lots to look forward to from a Canadian perspective. You know, maybe it's the gener a generational thing, Scott, because I don't know how you feel about it. There's so many interesting when you talk about teams. You mentioned nurse uh, basketball. Canada being a, a going concern in basketball is just a nice change period when it comes uh, to the Olympics. But for me, I find, I don't know if there's anything where they're more greatly anticipated than 10 seconds or less yeah. of the men's hundred meters. And DeGrasse is right in his prime career pocket right now. Um, but from the time they wander on the track to the time that gun goes off, that 10 seconds just grabs the world. At least it grabs my world. How about you? Yeah, it's, uh, it's gladiatorial, um, Robin. It, it's, it's the big spectacle. Um, and I, I, you know, you talk about uh, Beijing 2008. I'll never forget uh, broadcasting that night. Uh, when Usain Bolt appeared at the, at the bird's nest and, you know, shocked everyone in the world. And they had, they had 95,000 people in there in the bird's nest. And he ran 969 um, and, and then, you know, struck that beautiful lightning bolt pose. Uh, it, it is. It's, uh, it's the greatest moment uh, in the Olympics. There was... Without, without question, the greatest moment. And I think back of Donovan Bailey in, in 1996, yeah. uh, you know, and that great finish for Donovan. But, uh, and then you go back to it, and I hope, I hope that the fact that there's not a capacity crowd in that beautiful Olympic Stadium in Tokyo, I hope that that does not detract from the event because the crowd is certainly a part of it. Uh, you know, the hush when they go into the blocks and then just wildness when they come out. Um, it, it, it grabs me every time. And I, I would say this, too. I, I would say it's not only the men's 100-meter final, but uh, I, I can't wait to see Shelly Ann Fraser-Price of, of Jamaica try to make it a third Olympic championship at 100 meters. She's a senior athlete, the pocket rocket, they call her. 
She's uh, absolutely fantastic, and uh, she's a jet. It's it's a it's a great event, Robin. You are absolutely right. You, I, the hair on the back of my neck's going up just thinking about it. But here, here's a question for you. So we have Andre coming in at uh, nine point nine. Is he playing a little uh, possum here? Can he bring that time down? Oh yeah, he can bring that time down. There's no question about that, Bryn. The question is uh, right now whether he's he's had much international competition to rely on. But I know that his training is. Uh, is going extremely well. Um, he's a happy guy. Uh, Mia Ali, who is his partner, is uh, about to give birth to their second child. He is really at ease um, and, and ready to do some great things. Now, here's a developing situation, and, and you all know about it. Uh, the world champion, Christian Coleman of the United States, who missed three uh, test dates, has, has been suspended by the uh, International Athletics Federation or World Athletics and also uh, by the IOC. So he will not be in Tokyo for the 100-meter final, and that's advantage Andre DeGrasse because DeGrasse will tell you, I don't care who I run against. Um, I certainly want to be the fastest man in the world, and I, I think he can do that. <laughs> Justin Gatlin will give him a run from oh, the United yeah. States. And Justin Gatlin is, what, 38, 39 years of age. Like, that's going to be interesting. Speaking of amazing athletes, what's up with uh, Christine Sinclair? Got banged up a little, uh, uh, about a week or so ago. Is she going to be able to participate? Absolutely. Like, yeah, a a little bit of an injury. I don't think there's too much concern that it's a major thing. Uh, And and knowing Christine Sinclair, I think she will answer – Ansel the bell for the Olympics. There's no question about that. The greatest scorer in international soccer history, men or women, Christine Sinclair. And, you know, I, I would just plant this, maybe, I don't know, but she, she seems to me to be a wonderful choice to carry the flag at the opening ceremony. Uh, she's just that great an athlete. We, uh, we thank you for your time today. We're now starting to get a bit of an echo, and uh, we'd like that echo to come back after this is all over and done with to talk again about how Canada did. Is that possible? Absolutely. Thanks so much. It's been great to see you guys and to chat with you, and I, I hope you stay safe. So there you go. Scott Russell from CBC Sports with an interesting take on what's going on with the Olympics in Tokyo. And also, he's had a great career as a broadcaster. He's won many, many awards. So kind of fun to catch up with Scott today, and we appreciate his time. Before we go too much further, we've got to tell you the Outsiders are brought to you by the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City. We were talking earlier about the fact that it's a pretty good time in the Edmonton market right now because with low interest rates, people are either looking to get their first home Or people are looking to upgrade right now, take the equity they have in their home, and they're looking to get bigger homes. The the thing that I was most interested in in my conversation with Brent last week is that more and more people are buying acreages around the edge of the city, you know, the the places like Strathcona County, maybe out towards Sherwood Park, Leduc, Beaumont's another very, very popular place, and, of course, Spruce Grove and Stony Plain. You know, all these areas that add up to make the 1.4 million metro area, but he said the reason why people are looking at, uh, at acreage is because they want their bubble to be a little bit bigger. And they can afford it. The prices are good. Interest rates are low. So now's a good time to upgrade or get into your first home, that kind of thing. The area that's a little slow right now, and you can tell if you drive through downtown Edmonton, condo sales are flat. And that's because there's a glut. Because two years ago, things were looking crazy in terms of condominium sales and there was a real interest in being downtown. Right now, things have just slowed up a little bit. But here's the thing. All the guys can tell you, the team over there, they can tell you exactly what direction everything is going. They'd love to hear from you. Just give them a call at 780-464-0075 or check them out online at macintoshgroup.ca. Get the process going. They'll do a complimentary evaluation, too, of your current home. 
no obligation and no deadline for this offer. Just uh, They just want to talk to you if you have any interest whatsoever. So give them a shout. Ask for Brent or any one of his team members. That's the show for today. Uh, we're getting more emails, and I, love, I, I just absolutely love that. And it's real simple. Email us at theoutsiders at shaw.ca. I, uh, I, can't, I, I don't know why it was so quiet there for a while, but it started to pick up. The other thing is people have got show ideas. Love to hear that, Robin. And also guests. Some guests are not uh, reachable. You know, here's one. It seems that people want us to try to track down Kevin Bieksa. And I'm not surprised to hear that because here's a guy who has really done a great job since he moved from playing to broadcasting about hockey, I think, anyway. Do you? Well, I think we could probably get him as long as he doesn't remember. I, I called him a spot picker once, but... Uh, really? <laughs> yes. Hmm. I wonder if that would come up on the show. Uh, it might. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I don't, I think he would probably bring it up. I, <laughs> I think you'd probably just smile anyway, but he's done a great job. And yeah. I think part of it is, is that right now he's unfiltered and I hope he stays unfiltered for a very long time. Sometimes people always talk about the fact that TV people got to him, got to that guy, tried to reel him in a little bit. I don't know if he's really going to be the kind of guy who's going to get reeled in too much. And I think, if somebody said, oh, you can't say that, I would think he he's the kind of guy who might just walk away. I, I don't know. It's hard to say. But yeah. anyway, so I've had a few people say you should try to get him on. We'll try. I don't know if, how tough that's going to be, whether or not he does podcast work or not. But we've certainly had enough big names on the podcast where I think he might say, oh, well, you know, if so-and-so has been on that podcast, I guess I could I could give it a shot, huh? So anyway, so well, there's that. You know, uh, there's a few names out there for me too, Brent. I'm not sure uh, what people have been asking for. I mean, obviously, if we if, if we can, we will. We have not had on Ken Hitchcock, have we? No, there's another one. Uh, there's another guy. You and I talked about getting Hitch on about a year ago. And, of course, yeah. you know, the way things have kind of shaken out over the last uh, six to nine months, we haven't got around to it. There's a lot of guys I'd love to get on here, and I'm sure that wouldn't be that tough. Just want to hear some stories. The other thing, the other comment I'm getting a lot on emails is that people say that they hear that we have a certain guest on, and we do touch on some of the more, you know, more of the the hot topics, but we do it toward the end of the interview. I think that's kind of been the way we've designed it. We'd like to show a little different side of our guests, and we try to get to how they got started and try to maybe answer some questions. Uh, people always say, I never knew that about so-and-so and so-and-so. We had Kelly Rudy on a few weeks ago. People loved the first half of the interview in particular because Kelly was saying stuff that people never even heard of. That Kelly came across as, I, this, I laugh at this one. He came across as a regular kind of guy. Well, I got shit. I, I, I got some, some shit to tell you here. He is a regular kind of guy. He just happened to play in the National Hockey League. That's fair to say, isn't it, Robin? Well, absolutely. And, you know, what you want, at least what I think you and I both want, um, yeah, topic of the day is fine, but want people to say, man, I didn't know that. I haven't heard that before. If you're hearing it for the 10th time, well, you know, that to me, that's not the way to go. Whether it's a... Uh, a Kelly Rudy or, you know, we had Jack Michaels on Jack Michaels spends a lot of time on the air just by virtue of what he does for a living. Yet he gets into stuff that I, I think some people didn't know about Jack. Uh, he's been here 11 years now and that's what you want. Like, wow, I didn't know that about this guy. Uh, hey, tell us a story. Uh, it doesn't, you know, we can look in the record books for your coaching record or how long you've been with the team or what championships you won. Tell us something we can't find in every book. And you go that route, a lot of the times you get something that people go, hey, man, I didn't know that. The other thing, too, we do tend to go to people that we know can talk that that are, are you know not afraid of being in front of a microphone but we've had a few people that have been a little nervous about that kind of stuff but you know what they're just talking with us and it's almost like we're talking over a beverage of some variety and uh and i like that i like the the casualness of the interviews but anyway thank you to everybody for the emails that we've been receiving here 
in particular over the last two to three weeks. That's been great. You can also check us out on Twitter. The handle is really, really simple. It is at Outsiders2020. And that's when we started it up. So it's real simple, at Outsiders2020. Also, make sure you tell your friends to, they still use the word subscribe. You're not paying anything for this. You're following us is what you're doing if you hit the subscribe button. And we love that. Tell your friends to uh, follow us. Check out our RSS feed, which is basically when you click on RSS feed, every time we drop a new podcast, like today, you get a copy. It goes right to you. So you can say, oh, the boys, new co- new uh, new podcast out today. So you, you get it. It goes right to your system, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spotify, whatever. You get a copy of it. And we're also now on YouTube. Some people are listening to us on YouTube. We probably, uh, do you ever want to, people to see what we do here, Robin? Do you think we're going to get to that? Well, yeah, maybe when I, uh, when I get that cosmetic work done, uh, we can, we can flip on the cameras. I, you know, I got to fix that hairline and, uh, you know, maybe a little lipo will, uh, will help, but, uh, you know, eventually. Okay. Well, we'll ponder that. Anyway, your support is greatly appreciated. We can't thank you enough for that. We'd also be thrilled to talk to potential advertising partners as well. As we mentioned, uh, obviously the Macintosh group have been with us almost right from the get-go, and we love that, and we're getting bigger and better with your support. Okay, that's it. Anything else? Did we, did we miss anything, Robin? Are you good? No, I'm good. That is episode 55 Chevy in the books. Absolutely. Thanks, and we'll talk to you again next week, okay? You sure will, man. Storm in the castle.